0: Welcome uh, to Genesis. Uh, If you're here in this space, if you're out in the open space, welcome to you as well. Uh, My name is Michael. I uh, serve as a pastor here at Genesis and just thankful that you are here. Um, And I mean that sincerely. Uh, I might not know you and you might not know me, but uh, I'm just thankful that you're here because I'm convinced that uh, you're here for a very specific reason. And I don't even know what that might be, Uh, but God has brought you here today because I think God has something that... He wants you to hear uh, from Him, not for me, but that God has something for you that He wants you to hear that you would be challenged by, that you would be encouraged by, that you'd be inspired by. Uh, so thanks so much for coming. Uh, I don't normally do this, but wanted to give you a, um, a content advisory uh, on what we're talking about today. Uh, we're talking about sexuality. We're talking specifically about homosexuality and bisexuality, transgender issues, uh, and so if uh, you're a parent and you have a student here that you have not talked about these issues with, uh, I would encourage you not to have this be the first time <laughs> that they hear about those things. Uh, and so we've asked our student leaders, uh, meaning our middle school and high school student leaders, to have a special time for our high, middle school and high school students in the living room. So uh, if you're a parent and you want to invite, encourage your kids to go out there, that would be great. Uh, I'm going to pray, and that would be a good time to do that if, if that would be helpful to you. God, we love you and we give thanks uh, for what you've already done just in the brief moments that we've had together. God, it's just encouraging to sing songs that remind us, God, that uh, there is nothing that can stop you from being you. God, no evil in the world uh, could thwart what, who you are and your plans and your purposes for humanity. So God, I give thanks that in these moments, we've already been able to be encouraged by truth uh, through song. And uh, God, I I pray that in these moments uh, that we have now to consider some really, really challenging questions, God, I pray that you would give us wisdom uh, in how to understand uh, these questions. God, I pray that uh, everyone that's here today, uh, God, I pray that you would allow every single person to hear from you. Uh, God, I pray that my voice would just at best be background, and God, I pray that every single person would hear from you exactly what they need to hear. So God, I give thanks that you know every single person here. You know our needs, and I give thanks that you love us enough to meet us where we are, but you love us so much that you just don't allow us to stay there. Uh, God, I pray that uh, our time together would not just be informational. Uh, God, that we're talking about sexuality and And these things, but God, I pray that uh, this time together would be transformational, not just for us, but God, I pray it would be transformational for men and women in our families and uh, men and women that we get to interact with, friends, neighbors, co-workers. Uh, So God, please take these brief moments that we have and use them to help us to see you. We pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Um. I've shared this uh, at the beginning of every message over the past six weeks that our heart in doing this series called Ask was not just that we would be asking some great questions and hopefully hear some thoughtful answers, but that in the midst of the questions that we're asking, we'd actually get to see God. One of the things that I never stopped long enough to at least answer was, well, How is it that people are actually going to see God in the midst of the questions that we're asking? And I'm not suggesting that this is the only way that people will see God, but often the way that people will see God is through people who have a relationship with him. Uh, The way that people will see God in the midst of the questions that they're asking, not the only way, but a primary way, is often through those who have a relationship with God. And a major problem that I've seen is that when, we talk, when the topic turns to sexuality, sexuality, homosexuality, issues of transgender, when the topic turns to sexuality, people have a hard time seeing God because they tend to see one or the other in people. They either tend to see people who are really angry and really bitter and really judgmental, or they just see people who are really accepting of just about anything, which can send a very confusing message. Um, So it's hard to see God in people who are just angry, bitter, and judgmental, but it's also hard to see God in people who just seem to be accepting of anything and everything because that's just who they are. Uh, I'm not saying this is the only two camps that we have represented here today, but as I was thinking about, well, gosh, who's actually going to be here today listening to this message... I was thinking of two camps. There is the truth camp, and the truth camp to me, this is the camp that they know what the Bible says, and they know what God wants, and they want all people to know both. I know what God says uh, through his Bible, through the Word, and I know what God wants for you, and I want anyone and everyone to know what I know about the Bible and to know about God. My caution here with the truth camp is the right conclusions can be handled in the wrong way. Very often that you could have come to the right conclusions, but the right conclusions can often and are actually handled in the wrong way. People in the truth camp often focus on the sins of other people while not being humble enough to recognize and remember the sins in their own life and their own need for a Savior. So our task is to love people, not to see people as a project to be fixed. But our task is to love people. Uh, but then we have the second camp, and I would just call that camp the love camp. They're the camp. They know the truth. But here's the thing. They also know someone whom they love dearly who's living a life in opposition to the truth. Whether it's a son or a daughter, or a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, whoever it might be, they know somebody in their life that they love dearly who their life is being lived in opposition to the truth, and their feelings for that person begin to interpret how they now understand and apply the truth. Uh, You may have seen this is a very popular uh, hashtag, uh, but the hashtag is hashtag love wins. And that's, uh, I, I know it sounds good on Facebook or Twitter, and it just, it looks great, love wins, Uh, But love does not win if the only love that somebody sees is your love, and they do not see actually the love of God. If somebody only sees your love because you're just accepting of anything and everything that that person wants to do, but they have no idea about the love of God, then love is actually lost. It hasn't won anything. And so my invitation is not so much just to be truth camp or to be the love camp, But my invitation to all of us, what I think God would want us to be, the camp he would have for us, is just simply to be grace people, to be grace people. Grace doesn't neglect the truth, nor does it change the truth. Grace people remembers a gospel truth. Grace people remembers a gospel message that Jesus loves all people. As they are, but the love of Jesus transforms all people to begin to reflect him. Uh, Tolian Chevengin in a very helpful book that he wrote years ago, uh, called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything, said, I will never, ever uh, deal with you on the basis of your cleanness, cleanliness or dirtiness, your goodness or your badness, but on the basis of my son's finished work on your behalf. A grace person is not impressed with how clean they are uh, or is not grossed out by how maybe dirty somebody else is. Grace people see Jesus, they see what Jesus has done, and they see what Jesus specifically has done for them. So the invitation this morning is, let's be grace people. As we have a very challenging conversation and topic on sexuality, let's not just be truth people, let's not just be love people, let's be grace people who know how to Love people and also love people in truth. Here are the questions that came in. If the what for the church, meaning Genesis, uh, is helping all people walk with God, that's our mission, and the all is capitalized, are you sure you mean all? Question mark. Even homosexuals. Question two. Does God really hate gay Bisexual, transgender, and all other sexual orientations except for straight people. Question three, I don't believe homosexuality is a sin. I believe that the few texts that address it aren't speaking to monogamous, loving, committed, same-sex relationships like we know uh, uh, today. Am I still welcomed at Genesis? Question four, does the Bible still have the authority to say what is or isn't sin? Or does culture have some say on certain issues, i.e. homosexuality and gay marriage? Basically, can the definition of what constitutes sinful behavior change as the culture changes? Question five, is sin... Uh, is homosexuality really a greater sin than others? So much of the Christian culture would crucify this sin above others like drunkenness, gluttony, hate, lust, gossip, even divorce. While I get it's a sin, why has it become, in quotations, the sin? Uh, question six. If Bruce Jenner marries a man, is that homosexuality, heterosexuality, or something different? Is changing your sex a sin? Doesn't God want us to have a fulfilled, happy life? Uh, Question seven. If we believe homosexuality is an unrepentant uh, lifestyle, uh, let me say that again. If we believe homosexuality uh, is an unrepentant lifestyle, how can we share the error of the homosexual's ways without alienating them? How can we share Christ's love without supporting the sin or lifestyle uh, behaviors of homosexuality? So... These are seven tremendous, huge questions. And in the half hour that I had between uh, the first service and the second service, I got hit with about 20 more questions that weren't even covered. So I really just want to let you know that how I'm going to answer these questions today is going to cause you to have more questions. And that's okay. Uh, I want to invite you to continue to be asking thoughtful questions, to be having thoughtful conversations about these things. Uh, These are great questions that came in regarding the topic, questions clearly that our culture is talking about, but I don't know what your experience just in church life is, but often the church is very silent uh, on these things. And so for me, it's really crucial that we talk about it, not just because people are talking about it, but even more important, I really believe God wants us to see His heart for all people in the midst of these questions. And I'm just convinced today, if you could catch a glimpse of God's heart for you and for all people in the midst of these really challenging questions, uh, there might be someone else in your life who has no idea who God's is, would see God's heart in you. And that's my heart for today. Um, Before we get into these uh, seven questions, uh, I needed to make some observations that are really foundational to how I'm even going to answer these questions. So these are just three, not exhaustive, but just foundational truths that I'm going to make. Number one is the Bible is not a book about sexuality, namely homosexuality. The Bible is not a book about sexuality, namely homosexuality. The Bible is not the story of God giving a lecture on same-sex marriage or transgender issues. That is not the message of Scripture. To be clear, the Bible is not silent on matters of sexuality, but it is not a book about sexuality. What I'd want you to know is the Bible is about God, who He is, what He is like, and what He has done so that those who He created can know Him and can actually walk with Him both now and forever. So it's not to say that the Bible does not address matters of sexuality, it does, but what I want... I don't want anyone to be confused about, is that the Bible is first and foremost a book about how you and I can actually know God. I tell you this as an important foundational truth because often when we look at questions that we're going to look at today, we use the Bible as a weapon to hurt people rather than to help people see God. We use the Bible and say, well, hey, I heard somewhere in the middle of Leviticus it has something to say about homosexuality, so there, you got a verse, or I heard somewhere in Romans or somewhere in Corinthians, or some, we use the Bible as a weapon and that is an incorrect thing to do. The Bible is not a weapon to hurt anyone in any matter. The Bible is a gift from God so that we can see God, so that we can know God. So please know the Bible is not silent on these things, but it is not first and foremost a book about God's rules on sex. Uh, number two. Identity does not come from one's sexuality. Who you are is not defined by whether you're gay, or whether you're bi, or whether you're transgender, or whether you're straight, or whether you're just confused. Your identity is not derived from one's sexuality. Our identity stems from one thing and one thing alone, Your identity, my identity, stems from the image that we bear. Genesis chapter 1 says this. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In his own image. Everyone was created by God, which means we all bear his image. So who you are, first and foremost... Is identified, defined by the image that you bear. And so when we have conversations about sexuality, homosexuality, transgender, as we have these conversations, we first and foremost need to help people understand their identity. And their identity does not come from sexuality. Sexuality is something that we do. If we can help people understand, first and foremost, who they are, who we are, we bear the image of God that will begin to shape and influence everything that we do, not just our sexuality. So number two, identity does not come from one's sexuality. Um, number three, uh, as a foundational truth, we were not created for sex, but we were created to walk with God. We were not created for sex, but we were created to walk with God. We live in a sexually charged culture. Everything that we see, everything that we hear, everything that just is put in front of us is so much, it just screams sex. So much of the conversation centers around sex. Uh, And I want to be very clear, sex is really important, but it's not ultimate. It is really important, but it is not ultimate. And so, because so much energy and effort is spent on the important, and sex is important, we often lose sight of, or neglect, or just forget about what is absolutely ultimate. I do want you to know, when someone's talking to you about sex and sexuality, they're not talking to you about necessarily the physical act of having sex. Do you know what they're talking about when they're talking about sex? They're talking about relationships, They're talking about the need and the desire that every human has to be known and to be loved and to be cared for. We're not just talking about the physical aspect of two people, whether it's a man and a woman or a man and a man and a woman and a woman. We're not just talking about the physical act of having sex. We're talking about relationships. Jesus, uh, one of the most profound questions that I think he ever asked was in Matthew chapter 16. He says this, and this is his question. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? What do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? Is there anything worth more than your soul? What Jesus is saying is the most important thing, the ultimate thing, is a soul that is connected to God. You could be a person that has as much sex as you want to have with whomever you want to have sex with, but if you lose your soul... If you lose relationship with God, you may have spent years on the important thing, but you've lost the ultimate thing, because the ultimate thing is not sex. The ultimate thing is knowing God and walking with God. And this is the beauty of the gospel message, is the very thing that we long for And this is not just a sexuality thing, this is a humanity thing, is that we all long to be known, we all long to be cared for, and we all long to be accepted, and the only one who does that perfectly is Jesus. No man will ever do that for you, whether you're a woman or a man, no woman will ever do that for you if you're a woman or a man. The only one who can do that, give you what our heart longs for, perfectly and unconditionally and faithfully is Jesus. Foundational truths that hopefully shed light on how we answer these questions. The Bible's not a book about sexuality, namely homosexuality. It's about helping us to know God, the heart of God. Identity doesn't come from our sexuality. It comes from the image that God has given us, his image, and we're not created for sex. We're created for God. Number one, if the what of uh, this church being Genesis is helping all people walk with God and the all is capitalized, are you sure you mean all, even homosexuals? And I just want to say I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm not confused on that at all. When I intentionally put ALL in all caps, I wanted to emphasize uh, for dramatic effect, we really mean all people. Doesn't matter whether it's a sexual thing or whatever it might be, at Genesis we really mean we're trying to help all people walk with God. And in many ways, when I, I came across that question, I was like, wow, Jesus was asked a very similar question in his day. Uh, the, the Pharisees, and they were known as uh, the religious leaders, teachers uh, teachers about God. These were the, the men, the community that were trying to help people see God. They asked Jesus uh, a very similar question uh, and it says in Matthew uh, chapter 9, uh, but when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with such scum? And I don't know how your heart responds to that, but it breaks my heart to think that the very community of people that we're supposed to know God and understand God and help other people walk with God, could ever look at somebody else and say, how could they hang out with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And as I was thinking about Jesus' response, I was like, wow, He was really generous and gracious to these people because these religious leaders are questioning how Jesus, in their mind, could hang out with such scum. And as I was singing about that, when people view themselves as pretty in the eyes of God, then anyone who does not look anything like them must look like scum in the eyes of God. And that's what this community thought. They thought that God looked at them and said, how pretty we are because of what we do. God must be impressed that we know the ins and the outs of the Bible and that everything about our lives is making sure we follow to the letter of the law, that God must look at us as pretty people. But when he sees other, when we see other people who do not look as pretty as we look, they must look like scum in the eyes of God. And Jesus says, they don't. I came for the very people that you have declared to be scum. I have come for the very people that you have declared to be sinners. As I was singing about this, I uh, wrote down the question in my journal. Michael, who is the, the person that would be the most controversial person that Jesus ever came to save? Who would that be? How would I actually answer? Who is that person that I would deem as like, my goodness, this, if Jesus saves this person, that would be the most controversial person? How would you answer that question? For me, I answer the question by it's, it's the guy that I see every day in the mirror. That, to me, is the most controversial person that Jesus ever decided to save. And I don't mean to be rude to you, but it's true of you as well. The most controversial person that Jesus ever decided to save was to save you. The Apostle Paul, uh, who I think many of us would say, Uh, he was a guy who walked with God. I think many of us would respect him. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, in the end of his life, he died, uh, was martyred, was killed uh, in his mid to late 60s, says this. Uh, He's writing a letter to uh, a younger guy named Timothy. And he says to Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying. Everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Timothy, I want you to know, I'm the worst of them all. It wasn't at the end of his life where Paul said, man, that sin problem that I used to have, it's totally gone. I'm so thankful that he came to to save other sinners, and I'm not part of that. Paul, older man, says to younger man, Timothy, Timothy, I want you to know I'm the worst of them all. And I'm convinced that people who are convinced that they are the worst of them all are the same people that will get to see Jesus be Jesus. But the people who are most impressed with their prettiness and what they do and what they look like are the very people, like the Pharisees, who will miss seeing Jesus. They'll miss knowing and relating with Jesus. So Genesis, I just want you to know we're committed. We are absolutely committed to reaching and serving and loving all people. And I want you to be very clear when I say all people, I mean we will open our lives to gays, to bias, to transgenders, to straight, to moral, immoral, righteous, unrighteous, religious, and irreligious. Maybe put it another way, I would be okay if someone came to me and said, Michael, do you realize who you have here hanging out at Genesis? And what they meant in that was, do you realize the scum that's hanging out here? I would be okay with that. Because that's the very people that we're seeking to open wide our lives, our hearts, and build relationships with. That being said, I want to be equally as clear. We will welcome all people, but all people are going to hear one message all the time. doesn't matter who you are. All people will hear this one message all the time. You are loved by God, but repent of making your life about you and make your life about the one who gave his life for you. It doesn't matter who you are. I will tell you that. I will preach that to myself. I will preach that to you. You are loved by God, but repent from making your life about you. And this is not just a sexual choice thing. This is make your life not about what you want to do, when you want to do it, how often you want to do it. Make your life about Jesus, the one who gave his life so you could have life. We will welcome all people, but all people will consistently and faithfully hear that one message. Jesus looked at a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And everyone's like, this woman should be condemned. She should die. And Jesus looks at this woman in John 8 and said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. That's a picture of the gospel message. Woman, I don't condemn you. I love you. I accept you. I embrace you. But I love you enough to tell you, leave your life of sin. Your life of choosing adultery, choosing to sleep with other men that are not your husband, that is sin. Leave that life and embrace a God who knows you and loves you and doesn't condemn you but has so much more for you. Question number two. Does God really hate gay, bisexual, transgender, and all sexual orientations except for straight people? I just wanted to say no. No. He doesn't. God doesn't hate gay or bisexual or transgender people. And I get emotional with this one because why would a gay or bisexual, transgender person think that God hates them? Where do they get that idea? What would ever lead someone who is homosexual, transgender, what would ever lead them to think that God hates me? And the only answer I could come up with is because they've experienced the hate of Christians. They've experienced the hate of people who claim to know a God who loves all people. But yet they've experienced nothing but hate from that person. And I realize this might not mean much coming from me because you don't know me. But if you have ever experienced the hate of someone else because of your sexuality, or any other choice that you made. I just wanted to say I'm sorry. I wanted to, I'm a Christian. I'm not disassociating myself with Christians. But as a Christian, I will apologize to you that if you have experienced the hatred of somebody else, I want you to know I don't hate you. And bigger than that, God does not hate you because of a sexual preference or choice that you have made. And I share that with you, knowing that it might not mean a ton to you, but that might mean a ton to somebody else who's not here, that you might need to go and apologize to them. And it might not be because you personally offended them or demonstrated a hateful attitude or response or reaction to them, but somebody is asking this question because they have felt the hatred of Christians, not the hatred of God. God. Now, that being said, I want to be very clear. God loves all people, but he does not love what all people do. God loves all people, and I mean all people. But God does not love what all people do. We live in a culture that believes that if you don't agree and or support what someone is doing, that is somehow unloving. And I just want you to know that's ridiculous. It is not unloving to sup- to just stand or to, to tell somebody what you're doing, it's not right. It's not helpful. It is not unloving to disagree with someone that would be doing something that would be hurtful to them. If one of my kids was doing something harmful, but they just really enjoyed doing it, it would be unloving of me not to tell them, guys, what you're doing, it is hurtful. Now, I know the rebuttal to that, people would argue, well, Michael, how is two consenting adults, whether it's a guy and a guy, a girl and a girl, or anyone for that matter, having sex, how could that possibly at all be harmful? And I would say, well, that's a great question. It's a very fair question. But the question presupposes that we are the ones who invented sex. Therefore, we're free to do with sex whatever we want to do with sex. And I would say that's not true. We didn't invent sex. We didn't come up with sex. God is the one who actually invented sex. So my point is, the further away we stray from God's intention with sex, the greater destruction we will cause to ourselves and to one another. So what is God's intention with sex? And here's how I wrote it down. One man and one woman in the context of the covenantal relationship of marriage. What is God's intention with sex? If he invented sex, and we want to understand sex, therefore we go to the one who invented it, what what it was his purpose? What was God's intention? One man, one woman in the context of a covenantal relationship of marriage. And I realize that in our culture, that would sound at best, you're such a prude, Michael. I can't believe that you would define sex so narrowly as a man and a woman in the context of marriage. But the gift of sex from God is for a husband and a wife so that they could experience together something that they would not normally ever experience. And that gift is oneness. It says in Genesis chapter uh, 2, uh, this explains why a man would leave his father and his mother and would be joined to his wife and the two... Are united into one. God's design for marriage relationship is that the two would become one. Certainly, relationally, emotionally, spiritually one, but biologically as well, physically as well. That the husband and the wife, when God brings them together, they would experience something that no other human relationship could possibly experience being one with one another. Now, I don't want to sound crude here, but The sameness of the parts in same-sex activity does not allow for the two to become one in the same way. Just because two people hold hands together does not make them one. But in God's design, both relationally and biologically, God's gift of sex brings oneness. It brings unity. The further away we get from God's intention with sex, the greater harm we cause to ourselves and those around us. I just want you to know, sex is not just a me thing. When I take sex away from God's intention, his design from sex, I'm not just hurting me. Because I'm married, I would be hurting my wife, Kyla. And because I have kids, I would be hurting my kids. And because I'm part of a community called Genesis, I would be hurting every single one of you. And because I have a mom and a dad and I have a brother and three sisters, I would be hurting them. And because I have neighbors in the neighborhood that I live that know me, I would be hurting them. Fire in a fireplace is amazing. It's fun to watch. It warms the house. It's great. But try later today taking fire out of the fireplace and just put it in your living room. I promise you if you do that, it won't go well for you. The thing that was once beautiful and once just enjoyable and healthy and warming and all of those things is now bringing down your house. It is destroying. I know that's maybe a a silly example, but my point is this. When we take something that was intended by God as a gift for a husband and a wife to experience oneness, physically, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, and we take it outside of that context, people get hurt. Tullian Chavinjan, in a different book that he wrote, uh, said this, called, it's a book called Unfashionable. We abuse God's gifts. We take the good gifts God gives us, and we twist them and pervert them. In so doing, we turn something meant to help us into something that ultimately hurts us, and that's especially true when it comes to sex. I just, sex was from God for us in the context of a married relationship, I promise you, if I started having with a sex with another woman or another man, that would destroy the marriage relationship. That would destroy my relationship with my wife. And it's same true. If you start, you take that to anywhere. You start taking what God intended as a gift for this relationship and start doing it other places. It is very, very destructive. Number. Question 3, 4, and 5, they were very similar, so I'm, I'm lumping them together, but let me just read them again. Uh, it says, I don't believe homosexuality is a sin. I believe that the few texts that address it aren't speaking to monogamous, loving, committed, same-sex relationships like we know them today. Am I still welcome at Genesis? Uh, the question came in, does the Bible still have the authority to say what is or isn't sin, or does culture have some say on certain issues, homosexuality, gay marriage? Basically, can the definition of what constitutes sinful behavior change? Uh, Is homosexuality really a greater sin than others? So much of the Christian culture focuses on this as the sin, but we often neglect the other sins uh, that they listed, uh, things like hate, lust, gossip, divorce. Uh, While I get it's a sin, why has it become the sin? So I'm not trying to oversimplify these. are three great questions that came in, but as I read these questions, I'm summarizing them into this one. Who gets to define what sin is and who decides Uh, on what sins are greater than others. At the end of the day, who gets to define what sin is? And who one of us, which, who in here gets to define, well, that's the the big one, and those are not as big. There's still sin, but not as big. Uh, So here's how I would answer this question with a question. Where do our standards come from? Where do our standards come from? Meaning, how do we define what's morally right and acceptable? Now, generally speaking, in culture, we believe that every person has the right to define what's right or wrong for themselves. That's how moral standards in our culture are largely defined: is what is uh, right or wrong for each person. Now, if that's true, if that's true. We have to follow that truth to its logical conclusion. So let me ask you some really hard questions. Would it be okay for a grown man to have sex with a 12-year-old girl or a a 12-year-old boy for that matter? Would it be okay for a person, male or female, to have sex with an animal? Would it be okay for a person, uh, would it be okay for a brother to have sex with his sister or his mother? Would it be okay for a woman to have sex with Another woman? Or would it be okay for a man to have sex with another man? Would it be okay for a person just to have sex with anyone that they wanted? So, my question is how would you and I begin to even answer these questions because you've decided to say yes or no to these questions based on a moral standard? So, the question is where did your moral standard come from? Because if our moral standard is every person has the right to define what's right and wrong for them, then How do you tell the guy who says, I think it's okay to have sex with a 12-year-old girl, that is acceptable to me? Our moral standard clearly cannot come from what you and I deem to be acceptable or not acceptable, so where does that standard come from? And my point is this, we can't look to ourselves to decide what is sexually wrong or sexually right. We have to look to God. And I've already said this, but God is the one who invented sex. He's the one who created sex as a gift for the marriage relationship. And like I said in the beginning, the Bible is not a book about sexuality, uh, namely homosexuality, but it has so much to say on sexuality. Have you ever stopped to consider why? It's almost as if God knew that we would take something that was intended for a gift and we turn it into a God. And we would be a people, a community, a culture that would be so fascinated, so just sex and more sex and more sex. So we go to God, and what does God have to say about sex and the sexual relationship? Anything that contradicts God's intent of sex would therefore... B, sexual sin, defined not by you, defined not by me, but defined by God. Anything that strays from God's intent for sex would be considered sexual sin. So things like homosexuality, bestiality, adultery, which is sex with anyone who's not your spouse, swinging, friends with benefits, bisexuality, rape, polygamy, pornography, prostitution, pedophilia, sinful lust, incest. This might be like shocking to you, but the Bible actually has something to say about each of these things, that each of those things has strayed further and further and further and further away from God's intention with sex. We've taken it and made it a God when God said this is a gift. Anything outside of the confines of that is sexual sin. So my point in mentioning these is to highlight that God has defined what sex is and what sex is for, who sex is for, and where it is to be practiced. I can't define what is acceptable and not acceptable. So the question became, well, then, why is homosexuality in particular, why is that, like, elevated as the big one? But all the other sins that I think all of us would agree pride, Well, that's a sin. I don't think anyone would say a prideful spirit, a prideful heart is not a sin. But why do prideful people say, well, that up there, my pride, yeah, it's a sin, but it's not a big one. Uh, And I wrote down the answer like this, because sinners like to look at others' sins so that they feel better about their sins. That's it. We like to look, let me rephrase that. I like to look at others' sins so I feel better about my sins. People, we love to compare ourselves to other people in order to feel better about themselves. And the reality is we always compare ourselves to those that we deem to be less. I don't compare myself to Mother Teresa. Who do I compare myself to? Well, someone less than her. Why do I do that? Well, so I'll somehow, in some way, feel a little bit better about the sinful choices that I've been making. So nowhere in Scripture uh, does God elevate homosexuality as the sin. If you want to know what the sin is, the sin is rejecting Jesus. That's the sin. The sin that we should elevate is when we reject Jesus, that is The sin that is rejecting God. Uh, Romans. I want to read some scripture here. If you have a Bible, flip open to Romans chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to start at verse 25. If you're not familiar with Romans, uh, this is a letter written to a community of Christians that were living in Rome culture that was saturated with not just sexuality, which it was. uh, Rome, first century, was known as... A culture promiscuous with all sorts of sexuality. But he's writing a letter to a, a small community of Christians who are living in a culture that is just sin runs rampant. Verse 25 They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Verse 26. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And, when, and, and the men, verse 27, instead of having normal sexual relationships, relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves a the penalty they deserved. Case closed, Right? We stop reading at verse 27 and say, see, Bible says that's homosexuality, women with women, men with men, that is the sin. That's a really big deal. Well, it is a big deal. Why? Because it's sin. But we have to read verse 28 and verse 29, and then we have to read the rest of Romans. We can't just pick these three or four verses and say, see, I got a few verses that talk about how horrific this sexual sin is. It is sexual sin, but as we go on, it says, Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them uh, do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin and greed and hate, envy and murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. Well, gosh, that's a pretty long list of sins. Their lives became full of these wickedness, sins, greed, hate, Envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. Verse 30, they are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. Well, that doesn't seem to get elevated as a really big sin anymore. (laughs) Verse 31, they refuse to understand uh, and break promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things... Deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them so. So I can't stop at Romans chapter 1. I have to go on. Well, gosh, what, what, what does the Bible say in Romans 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and all the way through the rest of the story in Romans? And Paul is making a case that all of humanity has turned away from God. And when we turn away from the one that we were created to worship, we begin worshiping other things whether we're worshiping the God of sex or the God of ourselves or the God of pride or the God of whatever sins were listed. So I just wanted to be clear, the Bible doesn't elevate homosexuality as sin, but it, it says it's a sin, just like disobeying your parents is a sin, just like gossip, just like being unmerciful, uncaring, unkind. My heart in sharing that with you uh, was to really drive home the point that the Bible does not elevate one sin above other sins, it elevates and says, we're sinners, therefore we need a savior. And that's the beauty of Romans as you read the rest of the story is God loved sinners enough to come and meet sinful people where they are so that sinful people could be transformed from the inside out and the image of God be restored in our lives. Questions 6. And seven, if Bruce Jenner marries a man, is that homosexuality, heterosexuality, or something different? Is changing your sex a sin? Doesn't God want us to have a fulfilled life and be happy? If we believe homosexuality is an unrepentant lifestyle, the rest of the question was, how can we encourage and help those who are living that lifestyle towards repentance? These are really great questions, and um, I am gonna hold off till next week. Question six, in particular, is a really important question, and I don't want to give three minutes to it. So I'm sorry that I'm not going to finish today. Uh, these next two questions, we will resume next week. Um, this is not my way of giving you a cliffhanger, like, ha <laughs> come next week. This is my way of telling you that this is a really big question. And our, our culture right now is asking and really struggling with transgender, of what makes a man a man? What makes a woman a woman? Is it really just biology? Is it just chromosomes? Is it just parts? Or is there something more to it? So I will stop with that, and we'll pick up there next week. But I prayed at the very beginning of this message that this message would not be informational, but this message would be transformational. And so what I mean by transformational is that if God has been speaking to you about choices and decisions that you have been making, specifically as it relates to sexuality, I want to invite you today to make the decision to leave those sins here. Men, if you are choosing to look at pornography in any of its shapes and forms, whether it's on your phone, the internet, or movies, or YouTube, or any other forms of pornography. I want to invite you to leave that sin here, to repent of that sin. If you are married and you are engaging in sexual relations with someone other than your wife, whether it's with another man or with another woman, I want to invite you to leave that sin here, to choose. I will not dishonor God and dishonor my wife or dishonor my husband with this. Men or women, if you are lusting after someone who is not your spouse, if your thoughts and your heart and mind is filled with all sorts of things that are not helpful, healthy, or appropriate, I want to invite you to repent of that today. This is not just a message on homosexuality. This is a message on honoring God with our lives. We're talking about sexuality today, so I invite you, honor God with your sexuality. If you are a single man and you are fooling around with women, sleeping with other women, stop. That is dishonoring to her, that is dishonoring to God, and that's dishonoring to your future spouse. If you are a single woman and you are messing around with other men, I am inviting you today to stop. That's dishonoring yourself. It's dishonoring to God. This is not a message on just homosexuality and what God thinks about. This is a message on us honoring God with our lives and the choices that we make. Father God, I give thanks for today and these moments. God, that we can consider what you have to say. God, that we can consider your heart for each of us. And God, I give thanks that despite my sin and the enormity of my sin, God, I give thanks that you still send Jesus for me. And God, I give thanks that that is absolutely true of every single soul that is here today. God, I pray that every single person that is here in this space right now, in the open space, would be watching and listening online. God, I pray that every single one of us, God, would feel the weight and the gravity of our sin, but we would, God, be so overwhelmed with the reality of your grace towards us. God, I pray that we would not use our choices to choose sexuality That is not from you for us. God, I pray that we would honor you and thus honor one another with choices, God, that reflect your desire, your heart for sexuality. God, if there's one or many of us who are just lost and stuck in choices that we have been making, God, I pray by your spirit at work in this place and in each of us, we would be reminded of afresh that we have been set free from sin, that we do not need to choose it any longer, that, Jesus, you have broken the bonds of sin in our life. You've paid that penalty, and you've set us free. God, I pray that we would use our freedom to honor you and to honor one another. Jesus, in these moments when we worship through song and we worship by celebrating communion, We as a people want to give thanks to you, Jesus, for who you are and what you've done, that you came into a world just filled with humanity that had hearts and minds set against you, but you still came, you still gave your life so that our sins could be forgiven, our many sins could be forgiven, and we could have peace with you, both now and forever. So please, in these moments, what God has been speaking to you, please respond. Do not just treat this as information, Let God allow this time to be transformation and respond to him.